Well, as you're already open to uh, the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 3 this morning, we're going to continue in our study uh, in a sermon this morning that I've entitled, Dangerous Distractions from Genuine Unity. Now, as we think about uh, these particular components together, uh, we have to realize that we're in a world where so often uh, we are tempted to be distracted. Have you felt that way a little bit this week? Very, various different components for each one of us. Uh, but it's dangerous. I can remember one, one particular morning uh, that will probably I will never forget uh, in the course of my pastoral ministry. Uh, a dear uh, elderly woman uh, who had attended our church a few times and the Lord had brought us into connection with her. And as she went home that morning, as she had always done, she had woken up early, her Husband was a bus driver. He was connected with my father, and they had some bus camaraderie, uh, and we knew them. We got to know her. What a, dear, what a dear lady. Her husband pulls home, as she always had, as he always had, grab a cup of coffee, grab the mail in between routes, walks, as he would normally have done, out to the mailbox, and all of a sudden, uh, a driver comes over the top of the hill, who had been on their phone and immediately hit her husband at the mailbox when he was just going about his normal routine of his everyday life. I will never forget the phone call from this dear elderly lady explaining to me what had happened that morning in complete despair. We live and breathe in a world that has been designed for distractions. In fact, do you not see this kind of stuff? Now, this is not a plug for not being on your phone, although it's a plug for not being on your phone while you drive. But the reality is, what happens when some, when some moment in your life that you think that, that is going on, that you become distracted, and all of a sudden, the outcome of the situation was nothing that you had expected. All this poor this poor gal who is driving past their mailbox who probably had, had done various routine things and yet this one time now has to live with the impact that being distracted as a driver would be. But I would say that as we are challenged as Christians, we often don't realize the impact of our own personal distractions and the distractions that are accompanying us in the culture in which we live and in, as, as Paul was describing to the Philippians, he's saying, we're going to see these words, beware, look out. Because distractions happen, we think they're somehow minimal, like, oh, it's no problem. I, I imagine that morning as this, as this gal picked up her phone, probably to read some quick text message of some sort, thought nothing of it, and now is living with a horrific idea that someone's life has been, had been taken as a result of their distraction. And I would challenge you this morning, Christians, as Paul would challenge the Philippian believers, are you, be, are you being aware? Are you looking out for the distractions in the world that often try to sidetrack you? You might even think to yourself, oh, it's just this little thing, I'll just pick it up for a little while. And all of a sudden, you may not even realize that that path has led you down to a destructive area See, our world is filled with them, filled with all kinds of 
ways in which people become distracted. In fact, I think what we end up finding out is we have a master of distraction who is the prince and power of the world. As if somehow he hasn't been roaming the face of the earth collecting information about human people who live here and what they love and what their passions are. We sometimes forget that he has so much experience in distracting us, we think to ourselves, not me. No, I won't be distracted. No, I'm committed. But guess what? He is so committed, he is, since his existence and fall from the very beginning, he has devoted his existence to distracting, derailing Christians so that they would distrust the living God. Don't think that you as a Christian somehow could not be one of those ones who for many periods of their life or for years or months became distracted. Paul dealt with this with with companions that he had served with in ministry. Demas who had forsaken him. People who had all of a sudden been encompassed with the world. And today in the book of Philippians, he challenges us to try to be aware, to look out in the culture that we live in and not be fooled and distracted by the things of the world because it is very, very easy for us. Now, as we think about this main idea together, I really, uh, let's, this is where I want to park us this morning on this concept that genuine Christians pursuing genuine worship must guard themselves from the dangerous distractions that lead them away from unity. See, all throughout the Bible, there's this course of action that, that Satan has taken that people in their own flesh have succumbed to, and you have this outside influence, you have this inside influence of the flesh, which we're going to see today, and all of a sudden... It distracts a community of believers from the very thing that matters the most, which is unity. We're going to have to not be distracted by a whole lot of things, and I imagine the list will continue to grow. If you were alive 30 years ago, your list was was less than it is today because depravity continues to spiral this world out of control. And if we somehow don't recognize that, we are fooled into thinking, hey, it's pretty good. Now, can I just be the first to tell you? It's really good. I love it here. I don't love it so much that I want to stay for eternity. I want to go to where I belong. It is really good. As long as I'm focusing on the things that matter, But then it becomes really bad if all of a sudden I focus in on the things that are horrible. And there are a whole bunch of horrible things. And Paul minces no words in describing the very culture that these Philippian believers would have to live in. But before he gets to this, I think it's so important for us to realize that distractions lead us away from worship of God and worshiping with each other. Sometimes we get so focused on what's going on and distracted in our own lives, we just can't seem to think about how we're going to do this together. And that's what he's calling the Philippian believers to do. No doubt he had done this already in person. But he starts, he starts here. And I find it interesting because as we walk through this text, he, he starts with this comment. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. 
Now keep in mind, as you look at this word finally, uh, it's used in a lot of different ways, but finally in this context doesn't mean in conclusion. It means I've got a few more things to say, here's the rest of it. That's really what he's doing. He's not concluding the letter. Some will say, oh, this must be a different letter. No, he's just saying, and here is the rest of it. And so these are things that because Paul had a great relationship with the church at Philippi, he had spent time there discipling these believers and don't think that this was the only time that, or the first time that he would have ever said, look out and beware of these things. Now, and that is exactly why he says, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. Now, before we get to some of the distractions, and there are many, and there's a lot of despicable things in a depraved world, it could almost get you to the point that if you watch the news on a regular basis, you almost become a person who thinks that there is no hope, this world is pointless, why are we living? Lord, I'm just going to hunker down, bunker in, and I'm going to wait for you to come. We zip ourselves up in some kind of Christological bubble and say, I'm theologically safe, I'm not going to be contaminated. And we think that somehow that that is a way to live the Christian life. I've watched different people through the years try to do just that outside the context of community life, and it always ends in just another distraction, now just one they've created. The reality is, he wants us to rejoice. Why? Because God is in the business of a redeeming a depraved world. This world is not over until God says it's over. And when it's over on his timetable, guess what's going to happen? He's going to usher in a new heaven, a new earth, a new creation, and for you and I to be able to see and enjoy the very thing that he intended for us to enjoy to begin with will be remarkable. It is cause for rejoicing. Don't forget, Christian, that you have to leave, be living in a world where you're challenged and this idea of rejoicing, and we have said it, and Paul has said it at least two to three other times every time he comes to a section, and that makes me think, I'm, I don't know, I could be really foolish here that he's trying to make a point. Like that we have a hard time living our lives rejoicing. Like there are people here, we won't call them out because I don't know them all, that could have spent their week grumbling, complaining, and just saying, Lord, why in the world do you have to allow me to go through this? And they have forgotten entirely to rejoice in the things that God has given to them. Oh, on Father's Day, I'll tell you what, I am so happy to be able to be with my family. And I imagine you as fathers are, are so excited to be able to be there uh, with your family. To wake up this morning... Uh, the, one of the first words I heard was, and it was almost in the midst of like a slumber, like, happy Father's Day. Okay, good, I fulfilled that. Now, and then a card while they were in bed. Oh, the joy. I was so excited, I went and got myself Jackson Donuts. <laughs> like, happy Father's Day to me. The reality is, that there is a joy in this life that is, it is enjoyable that we ought to rejoice over but not rejoice in the same measure as we know we will one day when we stand before him in complete sinlessness. And I won't be so excited about a Jackson donut. I'll be more excited that I'm seeing the living Christ face to face 
and that I endured well, that I, that I was able to stay focused on God's word so that I wouldn't be fooled by distractions in my life. And I would imagine for you, you recognize, as I do, there are so many. Rejoice in the Lord. I think it really challenges us to ask the question in our own life, what are those moments over this past week, past month, past year, where you have really said to yourself, there is no reason to rejoice. Things in my life are so complicated, so confusing, so hurtful, so suffering-filled, that you've lost a measure and a sense of your own personal enjoyment of being secured and anchored to the living Christ who has secured and sealed your soul in such a way that even if all things in this world would come to an end, you would not come to an end. You would not depart into everlasting hell. You would be ushered into the presence of the living God. See, we fail often to ask ourselves these questions, and when we do, we don't have a chance to self-reflect and say, where is my rejoicing found? Even if I had all of these things that I wish I could have right now, or even if this circumstance could be completely alleviated, would that bring me ultimate joy? It wouldn't. Ultimate, satisfying joy can only be found in Jesus Christ. If you're here as an unbeliever this morning, it's probably likely that you've been trying to live a life finding satisfaction and complete enjoyment and rejoicing in the things of the world. And I'm, go I'm just here to tell you that the scripture, that Jesus Christ came to sacrifice himself for you so that you wouldn't find pleasure and be distracted by the things of the world. You have to ask yourself, when are you most tempted to believe that rejoicing is determined by how you feel, not by your, instead of by your security in Christ? So often in a culture just permeated with feeling orientation, those like, I will rejoice when I feel good. Well, good luck. <laughs> Because sometimes feelings last a whole lot longer. And as Paul says here, it is a command to determine that you will rejoice regardless of the circumstances. That's one of the hardest things in Christianity. To depend and trust in the Lord to such a degree that when you cannot see how this will turn out for God's good and his glory, that you can say, Lord, I'm just a created individual. I'm going to trust you that in the long term as I'm patient, I'm not going to live by my feelings. I'm going to trust in your word that says you have got something in mind. I'm going to wait patiently to see you be glorified. See, feelings are often so, so dictated in a culture like ours that is so fast in consumption that it desires everything now. That's why I think the heightened idea of feelings in our culture has permeated so quickly. Because when you can have something, like if I feel like I should have it, I go get it. Like when I want a donut, I go to Jackson Donuts. And you think, man, everybody's going to give me a gift card after this. <laughs> we live in such a world where we have these impulsive, impulsive nature of the flesh that if we want it, it's accessible. Can you think of another culture around the world that as much, has as much accessibility to anything they want whenever they want? as the Western culture. I can't. Traveled on a lot of different 
continents of the world, and I can tell you there's a lot of happy people with a lot of little, a, a lot of little amount of things. And I've always been taken back that they have not been consumed and distracted. And you know what their response is? And I almost have to talk them out of it. They're like, we want to come there. I'm like, stay here. It's so good. I understand what they mean. I understand their longing for opportunity. But sometimes in the midst of it, we fail to see what we can rejoice over. And when you see those things that God has given to you, Christian, fathers, mothers, families, I bet there was probably a whole lot of phone calls this morning that went out saying to fathers who you love and care for, happy Father's Day. Because it was something to rejoice about. He says this, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I think he knew we were talking about this on Father's Day as if he knew that when we would say, I have to repeat myself, uh, it's no problem. You never hear a parent say that to a child, do you? I think that's kind of funny. All of a sudden, you don't hear a parent all of a sudden correcting their kid for the 10th time and say, hey, it's no problem that I, that I say this to you again. But Paul, in his compassion, says, it's all right. I intend to remind you. And you know what that ought to tell us in the Christian community? We're in need of reminders on a regular basis. Because we get distracted by all kinds of varieties of things. Sometimes they're big, sometimes they're small. And all of a sudden we say, you know, it's all right for me to say this again because I love you in that kind of way. And the Philippians, I almost imagine like, here he goes, he's going to tell us again. Man, we needed that. You don't have to get something new to find something to rejoice over. Sometimes those things that we often need to deliberately call our mind to attention on are the things that will help us to be able to rejoice over him. He says it's safe for you. Why? Because as you rejoice in the Lord and your heart attitude is right, you haven't forgotten your purpose. And I want to tell you something. This is what Paul is saying. I'm t I want to tell you something now in his letter. And he gets very pointed. And here's where we come to these external distractions that often happen in the life of, the, of, of people who live in a world that has been impacted by sin. Notice what he says in verse 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, I don't know about you, but you read that and you kind of think like, whoa, <laughs> like he's letting them have it. He is really describing some individuals who were out and about doing some destructive things. Now, if you read the book of Acts and you saw Paul's missionary journeys and how he would go from town to town and these Judaizers who would come and they would follow him from town to town. And every time he would try to get a foothold of the gospel, these guys would come up and stir, stir up the whole entire city and Paul would have to be left with going down the side of the, uh, uh, you know, out the window in a basket. He's left for dead. Because so much of what was being stirred up was a level of distractions through false teaching. He describes these false teachers, and I believe here these are three descriptions to describe these distractive individuals in the life of the Philippian church. They're not three separate kind of distractions. They're one particular distraction he's describing in three separate ways. Here's the first way he describes it. He says, look out for the dogs. Now, this wasn't an uncommon Jewish phrase, if you understand uh, Jews and Gentiles in the midst of the ancient, ancient Near Eastern world. Often, Jews would look at Gentiles and say, they're just a bunch of dogs. You have this same mentality, I think, going on in David and Goliath. Remember what Goliath says to David 
Am I a dog? You think he had heard that before or something? Am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? See, they had this natural compulsion to describe those who were outside of the covenantal relationship with God. And so Paul picks up on this and he says, uh, look out for the dogs. Now, he's not just saying look out for, unbelieving, uh, for unbelievers. He's saying, watch out for these mutilators of the flesh, these Judaizers who demand something, who are saying that this is gospel, but it's actually a different gospel and not the genuine gospel. And if you follow it, his train of thought is, if you follow this distraction and embrace it as the truth, you will be disunified from those who actually believe in the genuine gospel. And that is his concern. They had enough going on in the life of their church to, just, to succumb to the presence and teaching of these false teachers. Well, dogs were a common entity in the life of the uh, early church and early communities. In fact, these idea of the dogs that would often roam around in packs uh, and they would uh, just be wild dogs and all of a sudden, they would tear apart different flesh. You see that all throughout the, if you read the New Testament and Old Testament, they say, you know what, we're going to leave your carcass for the dogs to tear it up. And what he's trying to say about these false teachers is this. There are false teachers that, that will come in among you, Philippian church, and there's ideas that will be challenged to be embraced within the community, and it will seem like they're okay it will seem like they're Jewish, have a Jewish familiarity to it, is what he's saying to them in the immediate context. But he says that they are actually not gospel servants. They are like these dogs that roam around in packs and they find and identify people that they can influence in ways that can rip apart the community. If you believe what they're teaching, they will destroy you. Look out for them. Oh, so often in times in a church and in a culture that we live in, there are many Christians who are very ill-informed of what is going on in the world. So much to the point that their own zipped up in their own Christian bubble in a way that the world in itself appears to have no impact as long as they don't go out into it. While in the midst of violating being in the world but not of the world. And then on the other hand, you have people who are so in tune with what goes on, everything seems to be about that. There is some kind of a balance that needs to be struck to being informed and making sure that we're not irrational. <laughs> that Paul says, look out for them, pay attention so that you recognize what the truth is, and don't think that's not happening, that false gospel isn't being construed in the world that we live in today, that somehow it's not seeping in to the Christian community by words of various concepts of tolerance and social justice and all of these ways that skew the gospel, it's a gospel plus something else. It's dangerous for us not to say something about it and stand for the truth would, allow, would, would make the church an ill-informed community of what's going on in and around us. Be mindful of these. Yes, there is just as many, in a sense, dogs that, that look to rip apart the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world and, and the culture that we live in. That believe that somehow this Christian oxymoronic statement to say, I can be a Christian homosexual, that that somehow could resonate with genuine Christians. 
We have to stand for the truth, even when it is unpopular. We have to stand there with firmness, and I think that's what he's doing. He's not standing and saying these things to the Philippian believers, and here's what he's not doing. Model my hatred spirit. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, be aware of what is out there. Oh, young person, I'll tell you, the the world is so keenly aware and Satan is so keenly aware of how to distract every person. And he has developed a culture of technology, allowed it to uh, to happen, so that we now have such a sophisticated technological world that all we've ended up with is more ways to sin. There's a benefit to having it all, and I'm not saying go delete your Facebook, go delete all your Instagram. No, that's that's not the solution. The solution is, be a godly Christian who uses it in a godly way. And when we do those kind of things, we stand against a culture that is is looking to rip us apart. Paul was so mindful of this in the Philippian believers because he desired nothing more than for them to be united with Christ and united with one another. He says, look out for them. Look out for the evildoers. What is he trying to describe here? He's saying these Judaizers who were coming into various communities of believers who were Christian Gentiles and Christian Jews together because this is what the gospel was. It was, there was no, uh, you know, there was no partisanship of this reality in in the first century church. It was Greeks, Jews, slave, free, you name it, we're here. It's all together. And all of a sudden, they come in as it Acts 15 has been has been the very challenge with this Judaizing community. From Acts 15, when Paul reports at the Jerusalem Council, and they come to the conclusion together that we cannot force the Gentile believers to succumb to the Jewish ordinances of the law. Otherwise, it is Christ plus the law is now a new gospel. And it was grace alone only through faith alone and Christ alone. And they knew it. Paul said to this community, look out for those, look out for those evildoers. Why is he talking to them about, is describing like evil workers? Because on the outside, it it appears as if they're having and gaining some moral reality of the Jewish faith so that they would say, look, it's actually good when they're actually teaching a different gospel. There's a lot of things that sound faith-like that are not faith at all. He said, we have to be watching out for evil workers, those who are going around trying to distract people from a different gospel. But don't do it with some kind of cantankerous spirit that's not filled with joy. It's a delight to tell a lost and dying world that there's an answer and a solution to all the chaos. But so often we shirk our responsibilities as Christians as we're going in and about our business saying, Am I even going to talk to this person about Jesus Christ? Am I even going to tell them that there's a hope beyond what they're experiencing right now? We have to look out for others so that we can identify not only those who are out to destroy the community of believers and that they are evildoers, they're working a different gospel. He says, look out, and this is where it becomes very pointed, and we identify these Judaizers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, if, if you had all spent in time, any time in, in, in the book of Galatians, you would see this common theme of this particular foothold of a different gospel. 
And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this poignant phrase and question to the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, have you began in the spirit that you now are perfected in the flesh? And to put it another way is to say you were saved by faith, but now you're trying to maintain that faith through good works? No, see, that's a different gospel. See, that's a gospel that is not Christ alone through faith alone. That's a different gospel. That means I have to accompany for myself this good works orientation. And I'll, you and I as believers in Christ who have lived here, who have lived uh, as a Christian for a while, you realize probably more, more, more than ever in your own life, if you were honest, there is nothing good in you. The only good that is in you is the Spirit of God who then helps you to be somebody who you could have never been. That's the only hope that we have. Which means any works of goodness that come out of it have a directly attribute to someone else, not me. The more that I understand that, the more that the Philippian believers understood that, the more they would look out for the gospel and the more they would look out for one another to maintain the focus of that gospel. So important. These mutilators of the flesh, those who demanded something very different. I think this is very interesting in the, uh, as he walks us through it because he wants to make sure that we get this idea that if we are not aware of what is going on, that we could be distracted. He wouldn't remind them if he thought it, it wouldn't happen. And that's why I remind us today. Be a Christian who is informed with what is going on in the world. Don't be lackadaisical in your response. Don't lip, zip yourself up in some kind of Christian bubble where you're not going out and interacting with the world. You have people that, that are in need of Jesus Christ. I I, I am so aware of this and so thankful for it that God does not call everybody into full-time Christian service because if they did, then where would the rest of the workers be that are going to help influence all the rest of the world? Companies and individuals and factory workers and those who are working at McDonald's. and where, How are we going to impact them? By being there. This is the calling wherever God has placed you to be the most God-honoring Christian that you could possibly be. So important for us to not get distracted because the moment that we do, all of a sudden we fall prey to a level of happiness here on earth. And we just think, you know, it is really good. Lord, could you just hold off on that coming back thing because I want to I experience a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Satan is a master at giving distractions. I often think about it much in the way that Pilgrim's Progress did when he came to, to the city of Vanity Fair. And he said, be careful. And I always think to myself, wow, what is this then? We've got this masterful, we have this masterful deceiver who is the prince and power of the air, who has created an atmosphere that is carnival-like. And guess what happens? He's made the rides with the intention to distract you, so you just keep going on the ride. Have you ever been to an amusement park and with your kids, and there's like, oh, I just want to go again. I want to go again. See, even Christians can get accompanied by this mindset that the world has something good, and it's so pleasure-filled that all of a sudden, the danger in Pilgrim's Progress was people never went and continued on the journey. Pilgrim would have stayed there. 
And all of a sudden, he would have been trapped by his own passions and desires that seemed to be so enjoyable. But the challenge is, is that the world has been designed by, by Satan as a carnival-like environment with the rides that he, has, that he has created, the atmosphere to appeal to the flesh, and the more we allow it, the more influence that he has in our lives. And here's the problem. is He's appealing to the thing that's not just outside of you. He's appealing to the thing that's inside of you. Your own flesh. The things that you want, the things that you think are going to make you happy. You think that the things that we say, if I only have this, then I'll rejoice. He's designed the world. And here's even what Christians do is they keep going and paying to get on the ride because their flesh so desires certain things. That's why he's saying look out for people who, who, who display wanting to pull you into that atmosphere. Be aware that Christians at times can struggle and we imagine say, get out of that line. Like, we, you got to get out of that line. You don't want to go there again. We got to get out of here. And that's what he wanted for the Philippian believers to not lose a focus. And he does that now by turning the, by turning the situation in, in verse number three by saying this. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship, by, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now when he does this, I think he highlights this internal distraction that exists within each of us, our own flesh. That we would put no confidence in the flesh. Now he gets us there by saying this, here's who you are. Here's, and and he's, he's, he's comparing it to Here's what you used to be. You used to be completely fleshly. But now he's saying, you're of the Lord. You are the true circumcision. This reality of the circumcision was always an Old Testament symbolic covenant between the people of God. It wasn't the circumcision that saved the people. Don't, don't be fooled into thinking as you read your Old Testament that somehow that as long as the Old Testament Jews were circumcised, they were saved. It was a symbol for them so that they could think about what Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, that God was going to circumcise their hearts. You know, that's what a hardened heart needs. It needs to be softened. And the only way, see, the covenant of, of, of circumcision was all about a picture. But in the culture of the Jewish faith, it became, it became more than it was ever intended to be. It was less about the symbol and more about the, the, the act of circumcision itself. So then it became, we are the circumcision. You're the dogs. And now they looked at it as, a, as an elevated status of nationality. Instead of Paul playing on these words, those who, who mutilate the flesh, he's saying, but we are the circumcision. Now just stop for a moment and just make sure you calibrate your mind to this. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying Christians are now Jews. That's not what he's saying. He's using the symbolic covenantal language of the Old Testament to say what was circumcision intended to communicate? A heart that is right with God. And what he's saying, you Philippians are the true circumcision. He's not saying now if you're Gentile, you've changed your, your nationality because you're in Christ now. The, this is, now you're Jewish. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, true Christians who have been indwelt by the Spirit of God, who had a change of heart, 
now embodied the very thing that the symbol was intended to body from the very beginning. Of all Jewish people, he said, I want not for you to be circumcised, circumcised of the flesh, but to be circumcised in the heart. And that is a work that could only be done by Jesus Christ. He says, here's who you are now, Philippians. You are true, genuine believers. So how do you mark and how do you know who is a genuine believer over against who are the dogs, the evil workers, and the mutilators of the flesh? Notice, here's how he describes them. So that, so that we could stay away from the distractions. How do you identify a counterfeit? By understanding what's real. Well, that's what he's trying to get at. Well, what is a real Christian then? Well, here's what they are marked by. They are marked by a change of heart, which is a circumcision of the heart. And now, here's what they do. Here's what they look like. They worship by the Spirit of God. If you're wondering to yourself, am I a Christian? These are marks of a genuine Christian believer whose heart has been changed. Do you have a desire to worship? If you're saying to yourself, I grew up in the church all my life and I've been taught Christian principles and I've been sitting in a pew for so long I can't even remember from the time that I've been little, but you, your heart does not desire to worship by the Spirit of God. There's something wrong with that perspective. And you ought to challenge your own heart to say, is this right? See, genuine Christians, those who are done what Philippians 1.6 says, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus well, guess what? They're going to look like something in the meantime, and here's one of them. They worship by the Spirit of God. Now, here's what this, let's unpack this for a second. This is a Christian who recognized that their acts of service in all of life in general, from the time they get up till the time they go to bed, and in every moment of their life on earth, is an act of worship in service to God, very similar to Romans 12, this is your reasonable act of worship. How could you do anything else? That's what he's saying. This is what it's expected. And they do it by knowing that it's by the Spirit of God. They don't do it in and of themselves. Someone's helping them do what they could never do. If all of a sudden you have a Christian who says, oh yeah, but look at me. Oh, that's dangerous. Don't be that kind of Christian because this is not the representation of a Christian who is worshiping by the Spirit of God, which means by means of, which means impossible without. <laughs> Christian, you can't come on any given Sunday morning to morning devotions, family worship, if God didn't work on your behalf to change your heart so that you would see the reason and the motive by which you ought to serve the living God. Which means that we often take it so haphazardly, like, oh, it's Sunday again. Wow, the week goes fast. Is there any preparation of heart for you that goes on Friday, Saturday, all the way through the week to prepare yourself for what we do here on Sunday? These are marks of a Christian who are worshiping by the Spirit of God. And notice this, this particular characteristic. And they glory in Christ Jesus. Uh, this, what an oxymoron to be able to think that some Christian could say, thank you, Jesus, but look at me. <laughs> I mean, that, that ought not to be said of the Christian. These Christians, and in our community, I would challenge us to think, are we marked by these? 
Are we people who worship by the Spirit? Do we agree with that? Yes, I, I, I believe we do. Are we worshiping, are we seeking to put the glory in Christ and no one individual? I hope we are. I hope you are as an individual. My goal is not to get the Father of the Year award. It's to get, it's to get before Christ my Heavenly Father and what he would say, well done. The more I can focus on that, I will worship and I will glory in Christ who gave everything for me when I deserve nothing. And this is where he comes to this last internal distraction that the mark of the Christian that he puts no confidence in the flesh. You know what? One of the biggest internal distractions that you and I often struggle with is our own flesh. The impulses and passions of your own heart to say, if I could only get, I would really be satisfied if... And the impulses of your own flesh want to draw you back to living a life filled with sin that doesn't glory in Christ, that isn't functioning by the work of the Spirit. The flesh, and here's the challenge with the flesh. Like, no matter what we can do to look out for the world, one of the biggest problems that you and I have is staring us in the face every morning in the mirror. And if you don't realize that, you'll never bring those passions and those appetites of sinful desires under the control of the Spirit, glory in Christ, so that you put, you have no confidence in the flesh. You ought not to be thinking to yourself, well, I don't think I'd ever do something as stupid as that. Oh man, if I, if I had some money for every time that I heard somebody say something like that, and it was that individual that ended up succumbing to all kinds of sinful despicable things because they didn't guard their heart. They'll say things like, well, I mean, what's, what's a little impurity? I wasn't there as long as I was before. I mean, that's progress, right? No. He says, put nothing before your eyes that is wicked and sinful. Our flesh is what wants to, wants to draw us away, and the challenge with it is, is that Satan is a master at creating an environment to appeal to your flesh and my flesh. That's the world that we live in. So the call to live and fight the Christian fight of faith is no small task because the challenge that you have will be to fight your own impulses of that residual impact of the flesh that so gripped your soul prior to saving faith in Christ that now, because you have been changed and redeemed and indwelt by the Spirit of God, the Spirit is the one who actually helps you fight the fight you could never fight so that you don't succumb to the works of your own flesh and in your own life. If we do, think of what will happen to unity in the life of the body. Not only will we believe the wrong thing, the wrong gospel, be distracted in the world that's filled and totally depraved, which is what flesh indicates, a world that is totally depraved, nothing good in it, the Romans 3, there is none good, no, not one, he says, if, if we succumb to that reality and we don't watch out for what's going on and stand firm in the truth with grace, we're going to be disunified. And how much focus on the real gospel can happen when everybody's all distracted and disunified in a, in a body of believers? They can't even remember the mission that God set them out to do if they're constantly being distracted by the world and disunified with each other. And the challenge that Paul gives to the Philippian, to Philippian believers is look out. Look out for the world. 
Look out for those who would change a gospel plus anything because it's wrong. But there's a deliberate challenge for us to be aware, but then to remember that we have confidence in Christ. We are the true circumcision, Paul says. Those who have had a heart that has been changed. Those who now glory in Christ. Those who now love him beyond all measure that we have we put no confidence in the flesh. Now next week as we come back, we're going to get to this passage that Paul gives this litany of his background history to say, if there was any reason to put confidence in the flesh the way that these Judaizers were doing, I have it. And then he's going to show us that in spite of all the things and the pedigree and the background history that he would have, that he could glory in his confidence in his own flesh, that he gave it all up. There was something more valuable than that. And as we launch into this, keep these truths in mind because we're going to carry them with us till next week because he's coming to the climax of this section. And so go back home this week, read this through your devotions, see if you can find it. There's something really valuable. We have to look out for it. We have to be genuine Christians. Don't get distracted. And there's a purpose to all this. See if you can find it in this, in this particular section. And we're going to cover that as we go through this in two different sermons uh, as we come back to this text because they're so important for us to remember. But as we look at this morning, I would just challenge you. Are you distracted? What's distracting you? Are you informed? You, 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 don't, you don't really think about how these things are happening in the world? Maybe you need to be more informed. Don't be in despair. We live in a totally depraved world. Rejoice. There's a lot of good things God is doing in the midst of depravity. That's, by the way, how he's always had to work since Genesis. In the midst of depravity. And then he's got the goal to remove depravity. That's what we're looking forward to. If we look forward to that goal and we live out this week saying, you know what, maybe I need to, maybe I need to not be as distracted with media this week. Maybe I need to make sure that I'm not having such a diet of all kinds of social media endeavors to say, you know what, it's just consuming me. If you're spending more time on social media than you do in the Bible, uh, maybe that's something to think about. And that's a challenge that many people face in the, in the world that we have. Why do we want to make sure of that? Because the calling of Philippians is to only let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, that, he, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you so much. These are challenging words to the Philippian believers. They're challenging to us. We're living in a world that's filled in many ways with people who want to maintain the idea that they have a gospel but it's plus something Lord that you would give us the kind of Christian discernment as we dig into the truth to make sure that we can stand firm in one spirit with one mind with one person to glorify in mind Lord thank you for the position that you've given to us that you changed us so that we glory in the things of Christ and we put no confidence in our flesh. Thank you for doing that for us. Help us as we live out this week. In your name we pray. Amen.